There aren't self-made men. You got to ditch that bullshit idea. It's not serving you. I can't tell you how many men think they can self-initiate, self-reveal, unfuck themselves. It gets sold to us all the time. So why not believe it? Listen, Google makes it an easy idea to believe. In five minutes, you can become a keyboard wizard, uh, a master of the wisdom of the ages. So how's that working for you? How are men faring in this brave, new, self-initiated world? This isolated, tribeless, guideless, connectionless world? Look, you can read all the books by all the Navy SEALs who have served, and I am thankful for their service. Even after reading those books, you can not have ownership. And you can listen to all the podcasts, just like this one, or read all those Instagram posts, just like the ones I put out there, and not see true change. You want to know why? Because wisdom isn't knowing more. It's knowing with more of yourself. And the reality is that men need to be guided into the experience of giving of themselves more fully, giving away the parts of them that aren't serving them. That's the trick, and that doesn't happen in isolation. We think that growth is about acquiring more, more stuff, more know-how, more techniques, more relationships, more cash. It's not. Growth up until the day we die is about knowing what to shed and when. And frankly, men, that's where we need help. Look, the mentors in my life, both peers and betters, have routinely shined a light across the dragon-like treasure hordes I've hidden in my shadows. They've zoned in on what needed to go and helped me understand exactly why. Other men have pointed out my defenses, my compulsions, my deflection strategies that I thought was just me so that I could get to the good stuff and then discover my authentic self. So men, if you're not actively being mentored or part of a tribe, whether professional or private, uh, you need to stop the presses and find them. Stop buying into the idea that you can see your own blind spot. Today I have on my podcast, Travis Streb, a guide and disruptive thinking partner and executive coach and a men's group facilitator. He is the host of the Men at Work podcast, and we talk about what it means to have tribe in your life, what it means to have a band of brothers who are willing to go there with you. You won't want to miss it, but first, this is Lost Man Standing. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Lost Man Standing, the podcast where we explore spirituality, ecology, and sex through the lens of the sacred masculine. I am your host and guide, Rainier Wild. Cool things coming down the pike. Uh, I'm about to launch a podcast for other coaches uh, with my good friend and uh, brother-in-arms, Ryan Sharp. He's a coach uh, and just an amazing human being. He's been an entrepreneur across the years, and um, really excited to launch that with him and really begin to talk about uh, directly the issues that are related to other coaches, both their practice but also the personal life. I mean, it is amazing what happens when... If you consider this, that most coaches market to themselves, right? If you're a 35-year-old woman who's been through hell and back, guess who your clients are? 35-year-old to 45-year-old women who have been to hell and back. And so you're sitting with yourself 
You're listening to yourself. You're listening to your own problems and you're hearing them work them out. Tell me that does not bring up stuff for you. Of course it does. And most coaching programs really don't touch that. In fact, most coaches for coaches don't touch that. They, they may tell you how to you know, make your first client, how to land clients, but that's where it stops. So much of coaching kind of comes from that executive world. They're not necessarily tapped into the heart of coaching. And that's what I'm interested in. And I want to help work with coaches, not just for tactics, not just for strategies. Those are important, and we will absolutely touch on those. You need to know things like how to set boundaries. You need to know things like how to be your authentic self and how to use that as a stylistic strategy in interacting with your clients. However, the thing that I'm really interested in is what is going on inside of you and how can you use your client's transformation to spur your own transformational work. So look out for that podcast coming soon. I'll let you know all about it as it rolls down the pike. Also going to be speaking at some conferences this summer. I'll let you know all about that as the details emerge. Setting up some conferences also. Talking about bringing workshops for men how to design and experience tribe with other men, bands of brothers, and we're coming to a town near you. We are bringing men's tribes to your location. I'm not talking about a namby-pamby, sit around and talk about your feelings circle. That's great, but that's not actually what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is something on the ground, something that actually compels us and drives us and motivates us tribe. Hey, you're going to actually hear Travis and I talk about that today. I'm, I'm super excited to, to unroll this podcast because I think we get into some really interesting terrain. You know, a, a man asked me a couple of days ago how he could connect with me and the work that I was doing. And I think the, the truth is that there are times when a man realizes he works hard as fuck at a job he doesn't care about uh, to pay for bills he doesn't make and for kids that he doesn't know and a spouse he really doesn't even connect with. And he realizes that the life he is living is not one of adventure. It's not one of meaning or purpose. He's lost himself somewhere along the way. He may have climbed that ladder of success, but he's discovered that it's been up against the wrong wall. He's a man in need. So I'm a teacher, I'm a men's wholeness guide, I'm a group facilitator, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, and I work with men to confidently live the life they should have. Sometimes this means goal setting and holding them accountable, but more often than not, it means helping them deconstruct how they've gotten to where they are and who they've become. And from that place, I help a man locate his sense of deep identity discover his true purpose, and build his tribe. You know, the primary way I do this is I use a tool, a transformational tool I call initiation. I draw on not only years of anthropological and psychological work, but also the transformational technologies that I've seen work in my own life and in others. It's an intensive six-week journey that is designed to catalyze growth, and I use every available tool I have to do so. We spend hours together over Zoom, which allows us to do this from anywhere in the world. We, uh, we spend a hell of a lot of time together, and you also receive daily correspondence and assignments to help clarify your life. After a man goes through that journey, we may continue to work together and mentor uh, him around relationships, spiritual practice, and performance mastery, but that mainly depends on what your actual goals are and what you need to accomplish in the world. 
as well as how it sits with me and my interests. The reality is it's a carefully chosen undertaking. But if you're a man who needs to chart a new course in life, I want you to go to the link evolvingwild.live. Click work with me and select initiate. I'll carry you from there. I really want to pursue this together. Men, I'm going to be coming back to you next week and we're going to be talking more about mindfulness. That's right. I'm going to be continuing on that dialogue. I think it's really important to continue talking about. Hey, I want to hear from you. DM me, email me, reach out and contact me. It's your voice that matters. And that's the honest to God truth. I got in this to work with you. And that is what I continue to do day in and day out. Thank you so much for allowing me to do that. I think that's it. I think that's all I have to say. So without further ado, I present to you Lost Man Standing. This is Travis Streb. Maybe you could tell me what you think is going on. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. This life's hard, man, but it's harder if you're stupid. I've been around, you know. There was a time I could see, and I have seen, but there is nothing like the sight of an amputated spirit. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Today, I've got the style and profile like never before. To be the man, you got to beat the man. And I'm saying, woo, right here. I'm the man. So I'm here with Travis Streb. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you, how do you, you say that? I say Streb. It's t- it's tough though because you got double consonants, so it's Travis Streb, and you got two S's. It's toughy. Yeah, you know there was a part of me that really wanted to to rock it with like a Strabe, you know, like a an accented. We could have last we could have made name. up all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's a very Travis rare is name, a coat. So. Well, and so I think we're gonna get into your ancestry. That's. That's what we're passionate about here on Lost Man Standing Ancestry. No, I'm just joking. That's <laughs> Travis is a is a coach. He's a transformation partner, and he's the host of a podcast, Men at Work. Is that is is that is that right? I mean, are you the man at work himself? I am a man at work, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm at I'm glad I'm at work. It's important to do the work, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I was also shocked when I discovered that that podcast name was available. I thought of all the men's podcasts, nobody chose Men at Work. Didn't wasn't that a wasn't that an eighties band? Uh, <laughs> Do you come from a land down under? It is, you know, big song. It is, and when I but I and I was worried about submitting the name to iTunes. I'm like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna not let me because the Australian band. I had multiple friends send me um, jokes about my podcast name. Um, but Hey, it's a, it's a catchy name. People dig it. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So I, I first met Travis. Um, well, I'm not going to share when I first met you 
as interesting as that is, but more when I first encountered you, and this is where we're gonna like get get rolling because when I first encountered you, I um we were we were attending a leadership mastermind summit. I, I hate the name mastermind groups, by the way. It makes me feel like I'm going to like an evil lair or something like that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not you, a, I'm not a fan. I don't have a yeah, I don't have a great history with mastermind groups, so I prefer I mean, we can just call us what what it was. It was a it was a men's weekend. We did men's yeah. work under under the guise of it being a mastermind, but I don't ever recall my mind being very active. <laughs> no, no, I I I wasn't mastering my mind, but <clears throat> <clears throat> however, on the lead into it, we were we were working in an Excel spreadsheet where we were sharing, you know, like what we were going to bring, like uh, teachings, uh, camping gear, beverages. And I distinctly noticed this one dude, um, whose comment was not like the others. And so like everyone's comment was like, I'm bringing whiskey. I'm bringing, you know, Rainier, the beer, not me. And, <laughs> uh, and then, and then there's this one comment. I'll bring tea and water. I do not drink. I am sober. And I remember looking at that and going, Jesus, this guy is going to be fun to be with. And I was so surprised because I literally loved being with you. <laughs> yeah. So that well, was my introduction to Travis. I, I, I questioned whether I should put that down, but I'm like, I, and I just to be totally clear, I did offer to also bring kombucha, which I did bring. That's true. You did that. That that is right. But but it was such a cool connection, actually, like to meet you and, you know, sobriety aside. And I do actually want to talk about that because that is such an interesting and important topic in men's work. I think that that gets missed over in our alcohol culture. Um, but I, I I am so fascinated by what you do. Um, you're a transformational leadership coach, and and I love this this description a dis a disruptive thinking partner. What in the world is a disruptive thinking partner? <laughs> it's, um, you know, it comes through my coaching work because I had some clients who I would literally just sit with and we would talk through stuff. And I was wondering, I'm like, why are you like hiring me to do this? And I realized that it was because it wasn't that I was coaching them. It was that I was offering them insights that were literally disrupting the way that they were thinking about what they were doing in their businesses. And generally, it was about how, you know, their way of being and, and the way that they were leading. But um, it became a different way because some people don't like the word coach. And I wasn't actually coaching them. Like, literally, we were just having conversations. And I'm like, yeah, what, like, what about this? Or I wonder if you tried this. And, and they'd keep hiring me back. So that's where that's where it came from. You talk about your practice and you, you actually say that, that you're an embodied leadership um, coach as well. And mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to give like full opportunity to so much of what our conversation is going to be to that concept of embodied leadership. I'm fascinated by what you mean with that. Well, I mean, what I mean by it is that it, it's that leadership happens through action moment to moment action and whether you're leading in you know in the home in a relationship or at work which is where i spend the most of my time um coaching around but it was through my own experience 
I mean, I was, I was a, you know, self-help leadership book junkie. I had read and listened to podcasts about leadership and self-development for years. And I'd read, like read all the books. And yet I realized I'm like, I'm not actually very good at doing all the stuff in these books. In fact, I've never actually tried for more than, you know, a week or two to actually do any of it. And then I, <laughs> in my coaching work, I realized that I, in most of the clients and, you know, especially men were the same. Like I had done what they were doing, which is intellectualized leadership, um, which is an ethereal concept without actually making it real through my body, through my actions. Um, and so mm. I really I changed the way that I coach and now I'm focusing exclusively on, okay, what are you doing moment to moment, day to day to embody leadership? And there's tons of room for theory. I'm not saying we don't need leadership theory. It's just not my area of expertise and not an area that I think, it's not the area that I think needs the most attention for the clients I tend to work with. Mm. And and you work a lot with men, is that right? Yeah. That's, you know, at least I got kind of 90, 90% of my client base is men. Mm. Would you say that men in particular in this culture are disembodied? Yeah, it's been my experience, you know, and, and, uh, I've certainly seen it in my clients and that's, you know, it's kind of the genesis of the whole podcast is I kept seeing the same pattern of like, yeah, I understand all this stuff. And, you know, I, I know what good leadership looks like. It's like, yep. And you're not doing it. Like you're thinking mm -hmm. about it as opposed to doing it. it. It lives inside your head as a concept. You've been to all the courses, you've read all the books, just like I had, and you're not able to make it real. And embodiment as a, as a concept, you can go very deep. I mean, you can look at spiritual embodiment, but really it's about taking ethereal concepts and making them real through action. And the ethereal concept I happen to work with is leadership. Um, mm. And so it's about really questioning, like, are you really embodying the things that you would like to, or are your actions reflective of how you would like to be in this world? And if they're not, how can we better align them? I mean, yeah, you're going to have mistakes. And there's times where it's not going to work out, but um, most of the time, I think for a lot of people, it exists in their head only that so they feel like, or they think they're doing all these things. And the reality is, that they're just not, or they're not amplifying it enough, or there's something missing. And usually it's embodiment. I'm thinking of another word um, that might be a little more obscure to many, many people, but in one faith tradition, which I think is probably the predominant Western faith tradition of Judeo-Christianity, there's this word incarnate or incarnate. And, and that's another word for embodiment. Right. And I love actually the etymology of that word incarnate carne, like carne asada, like meat. <laughs> it literally is, is getting into the meat. You know, it's, it's your meat, the flesh and blood of it is on display. And I think that's what embodiment is, is all about. And I, I can't help but think you're absolutely right. Not only with leadership, but I deal with men often in, in relationships and, and then in their own, just in their own sense of purpose. And what I experience from them is 
Yeah, they they seriously know themselves inside and out. They have all the great theories. They know all the books. They've done all the Google wisdoming possible, but they are totally clueless when it comes to actually living it out. And I don't mean clueless in terms of an intellectual sense, but but literally they don't have the practical experience of of incarnating or embodying these things. Yeah, there's that. And I don't know if they get the feedback um, that they need. Mm. And so whether it's in relationship or in the workplace, the feedback is often really, really weak. So for instance, somebody might not be coming across the way they want to come across or really embodying this idea that they want to be an you know, open, heart-connected leader. But the feedback that they're getting is intellectual. It's like, oh, you're not delegating well, or your communication style is not appropriate or not, you know, it's not aligned. And so they get these kind of corporate jargon-filled pieces of feedback that they're unable to act on. And mm. um, and in relationship that, you know, I think it happens as well. I mean, this is more your area than mine, but um, certainly when you have feedback coming in relationship that's purely verbal or cognitive, it's difficult to really understand, well, what would I do differently um plus there's a whole fact that you know if when feedback becomes a reprimand it's um fairly useless <laughs> especially in relationship you and i are both uh in men's work and have done men's groups and, and been a part of that do you find that that feedback is one of those elements that you get out of men's work or that you find value in from other men oh a hundred percent i mean it's like it's conscious um, and compassionate ego slaying in, in some cases <laughs> where you, and, and, and I really respect that. I mean, as, as, as men, as more masculine beings, we're able to really cut to the chase of this is what's going on. I mean, I even, even specific feedback, like, you know, your, your, you know, your eyebrows are squinted and you look very sinister when you're speaking to me, you're like, oh, this is exactly the same way I carry myself at work. I wonder if this is going to, and, and it is such a gift to get feedback. And especially in, in a place that feels safe. And I think that's the biggest, that's the hardest part is like when is getting feedback and finding the safe place to get it. Cause often feedback is given in a very unsafe environment uh, or it's given in an unsafe way. And, and so men's work is a way to create a safe container uh, and to set the, the stage for what feedback is. And so, you know, it's like, I want more of or less of, or here's what I love. I want like more of or less of, as opposed to, yeah, you didn't do that very well. Or, hey, that didn't work. Like it's, it's, it's a tough thing to give feedback properly. Yeah. And I'm even thinking of like deep feedback also where, you know, one person says, oh, man, you really fucked up, right? Which is a very unsafe way of saying its impact. You know, it's a lot of blame. It's it's very externalized. And then the person receiving the feedback goes, oh, man, that felt like a really fucked up things to say. That really lands for me and brings up a lot of stuff. And then the other guy goes, oh, man, hearing that, I am so... Um, impacted by the fact that I just projected all of my shit onto you, right? I mean, it, it becomes almost yeah. this cascade effect where we're able to process that stuff. It may not be safe in the moment, but the overall container 
is one where we know we're going to work it out. Yes, I think it's 100% okay to have moments of unsafety as long as the overall container is safe, as you say. If the if the room feels tight, the, the group feels tight, and that's the beauty of men's work when you create that. You really end up with a place where you can you can go and say the thing that needs to be said and know that it, it, it will be received in a great way and that it will lead to the next level of conversation. I also love the dual reflection you just highlighted. It's like you say something and you realize, oh, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It, I did. I wanted to actually ask, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about where I was in relationship to who I was before engaging in deep men's work, before really, really submitting to that process. Who were you? I'm so curious. Like, where where were you before that feedback loop and that, that process of direct interaction with men? It was, I was in a place of head down, get shit done mode. And... Mm. It came out of, well, I mean, that's the way I, I, I was brought up. I was very good at putting my head down and making things happen. You know, I was involved in endurance sports like rowing and cycling, which are, well, people joke, but I think it's true. A lot of endurance athletes, myself included, were somewhat masochistic, but we're very good at putting our head down and just getting something done. And I had... Mm. I can come become fairly unconscious of what was going on around me and, and figured that my value was coming from the things that I was doing. And in particular, I was, you know, very young when my first daughter was born, at least by Western standards, I was 21 years old. Um, you know, I've been with my wife, who's now my wife, we'd been together for a year um, and a bit after before my daughter was born. So you can do the math on that one. So I felt like, okay, I got to get you know, serious about my career. I got to put my head down. I got to work and I got to support this family. So there's a good in that, which is okay. You know, got my shit together and, and did that. The bad is I never, I never put my head up. It just stayed mm -hmm. down and I missed, um, I'd say a good chunk of my relationship and, and the early part of my, my oldest daughter's life, which I highly yeah, I just regret. Wanna... And the, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to like freeze on that because I feel like I don't want to let that moment, I don't want to let that insight pass myself or my audience by because I think that is so huge what you just said that you were trying to provide and, and, and I'll use another phrase, preside over and, and create this product for your family that was dependent on you. But you were missing them the whole time. Yeah. 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 It, was lo it was lonely too. I mean, you, I shouldn't say you, I, I felt like I was the only one that was doing this and that all mm. I had to do was just there were like that there would be some, there would be some finish line. So almost like a, like a long endurance race, You're like, okay, well you just got to suffer through. Um, and that was a long you know, a long few years of doing that for sure. That, that right there. And I don't know if this was your experience, but for me, it was very, very similar. You know, I, I also have, have kids and I, I also was kind of hunkering down, doing the hard work, working multiple jobs, side hustle, all this stuff. 
And you know what it created for me was like this permission to develop a secret, um, a secret life. It allowed me to sedate and, um, and distract. I justified my bad behavior as a way of rewarding myself for all of the hard work I was doing. Uh, do you, did you experience anything like that or well, am I just plumb out to dry? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think it was a different version for me. For me, it was more like it gave me permission to um, feel like I needed a break um, and a break uh, from feeling anything. So like mm-hmm. the it was the, the the head down thing was a version of numbing so if i worked hard i could avoid feeling the things that i was supposed to feel which at the time were fear you know like fear about actually being able to raise a family um you know it was early part of my career so fear of failure which is you know probably i'm sure you know this like a number number one fear among most men um <laughs> yeah. and and so the head down thing was a form of numbing. And then by the time I got to the end of the week, it was like, okay, man, I like, you know, I've put everything out, put everything out. I can, uh, time to, you know, chill out on the couch and watch some football or have a beer, or whatever that would be, which is fine. It just became a numbing mechanism as opposed to a way to relax. Like what a deadly cycle, right? Like that you, you have these golden intentions of providing and you're bringing your full gift to to it i mean certainly you're you're bringing your strengths you're bringing your gold and at the same time you're not able to actually interact or or at least be as present with the very people you're providing for and in order to justify that in order to to get through that you're numbing you're sedating on the other side it's really Mm -hmm. a deadly cycle yeah, it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't just traditional numbing things like, you know, like alcohol or, you know, sitting around and watching TV, but even the mere act of putting my head down and doing something was a form of numbing where you almost mm. put yourself in a state of suffering to not to avoid the need to feel anything. Mhm. Mhm. You're an Enneagram 3, right? Yes. <laughs> totally. I mean, I actually did know that before this conversation. I think I remember us talking about it, but man, if I hadn't known that, I would have known that as soon as you said that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is the yeah. great virtue and the vice of the three, right? That's it is. Workaholism. Virtue and a vice. Yeah. <laughs> They're great triathletes. So what, totally. Yeah. Well, and really detaching from from what's going on inside in order to to produce as much as you do. I mean, mm. it's, it's so impressive to watch, but it's also, you know, that the cost is so high. So what was your wake up call? Like, where did you go? Oh, this cannot keep happening. It was right around the time that my second daughter was born. So about four years after my first, and so it'd been four years of head down. And I realized that I, had a deep longing to actually be connected with my own family and mm-hmm. that it was a, it was a pattern that, um, you know, I, I you know, started looking at, at my own relationship with my dad, you know, who had, well, right after my, my uh, first daughter was born, had in essence walked out on, on our family. We were all grown up, mm-hmm. but it was that's still a version of walking out. And I realized yeah. I was doing the same thing he did, which is detaching 
detaching from the family and going, okay, I'm the, I'm, I'm outside and I'm providing and I'm providing money and security and, you know, whatever else I was convincing myself of. And so it was a, it was a wake up in that sense. Although there was, I can't recall a specific moment where I was like, whoa, like there wasn't, there wasn't necessarily the rock bottom. Um, it was more just a general sense of, I need to write a new narrative um, for for my life and to write a new narrative for the generational karma that I'd inherited from my father and grandfather. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you started to view these long-standing patterns and going, I'm not sure if I want to repeat that in my life. In fact, I don't want to repeat that in my life. Yeah, like it was for sure, it was knowing I don't want to repeat that in my life. and. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was it it you know that led me into a lot more personal work and into men's work and into uh, a deeper discovery of what the value of a man actually is in in society and work and um in a family. You know, it, when when a lot of men come into men's work and and you know, I I say a lot of men again, this is from my experience and and the experience of others who have had that same kind of trajectory. Um, one of the things that I find happens uh, is that we're isolated. We're lonely. Um, we haven't actually had the amount of male input that we could have wished. Did, did you find that, that, that kind of growing up or, or, you know, as, as you had, gotten older and matured that you had had the amount of male interaction that you would have wished for? The amount was fine. It was the quality of it that was mm. missing. And so I spent a lot of time playing sports. Um, that was my thing growing up. And so I was constantly surrounded by other boys and other young men. And it was more about what's the, what's the, what's below the surface and there, I can recall very few interactions that weren't, um, you know, pseudo masculine bullshit where it was just chest beating and talking about, um, women and girls. And, you know, if you're going to get drunk on the weekend, it was, and it really just, and obviously when you're, when you're a teenager, that stuff's going to be normal, but it really didn't have any substance or depth. I, I was, I'm fortunate that I still have a good handful of friends that were my good friends during high school. And, you know, mm -hmm. they've stuck with me and I guess for better or worse, I've stuck with them as well. And we now have connections that are deeper. Um, mm -hmm. But even still not the, you know, the depth I have with my men's group is a lot deeper than the majority of my friendships that I have for people that I've known for 20 years. Hmm. How is that possible? I mean, I, I experienced the same thing. I'm just thinking, what is it in particular about that that makes that doable? You know, we've got these long-standing relationships. Why don't why don't we take them deeper? Ever you think? I don't know. I mean, I know my own experience was more out of fear of having any kind of intimacy with a with a man, and intimacy mm -hmm. in the sense of you know sharing things that actually matter and. And, you know, acknowledging that not everything is, is all roses. Mm. And, 
you know, in the last few years I've, I've found I can open up more, but also it's a, it's a question of, do we have, like, are we both going to go there? There's a fear that, that I still have. It's like, well, if I jump and make this move, is this other man going to jump or am I going to totally freak him out and alienate him? <laughs> right. Yeah. Plus there's also this other side and I don't know if you experienced this. I <clears throat> recently, I, I found out that a, a long time friend of mine was going through a really, really difficult thing and he didn't tell me, didn't, didn't actually tell me about it. I was really surprised. I was really shocked. He told instead uh, a person who he was only mildly connected with this deep, deep truth that he was going through. And I, I kind of felt a little butthurt over it. You know, I just was like, Oh, why wouldn't he entrust his good friend with this? And then it kind of occurred to me, sometimes it's easier to, to actually entrust these deep realities to people, you know, who we don't have water under the bridge with. Yeah. The relational there's, you don't have the relational patterns either that you have to break in order to bring that stuff up. Um, and I've, hmm. I've had very similar experiences where you, you know, I hear about something that's very third hand or, you know, a, a, a guy will casually mention that he's having, you know, some relationship problems. And, you know, it's like at the end of a two hour chat or a hangout in the sauna. And, and it's, you know, at that point, we're both leaving to go our separate ways. And you're like, oh, okay. I guess that wasn't the thing that this person wanted to share with me. And whether it's because I'm not trustable or we don't want to break the relational code, I think it's more about the relationship has patterns. We're friends, we ride bikes, we drink beer, we hang out. Let's not talk about feelings or relationships. I love what you share on your website and what we've actually talked about with the embodied men's group that you're innovating there in Vancouver, BC in that area. And, um, you, you talk about learning and growing through action. And um, I think we've both had enough exposure to men's groups that I, I sometimes call them masturbatory because there's just a lot of motion, but not much movement. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of emotions and, and rules and, and kind of heavy handed infrastructures or, and and that's fine, you know, that's fine. Uh but but what does it mean to grow through action as opposed to simply talk? Well, again, this is a, just a reflection of my experience is I um I spend a lot of time in the talk uh, area of men's work and personal development where it's a lot of talking, writing, highly structured and it just it it works, but it's slow. And when I discovered embodied men's work, so the lineage of you know David Data and my teacher John Wineland, and when I be, when I experienced that for the first time and saw, you know what you can get out of embodied men's work and how fast that change happens for me, I was sold. And so I actually believe that that for some men. Um, you know, talking it out, writing it out and, and those, those, that type of process, you know, as you call it, the, you know, the masturbatory, whatever, whatever it is, it works really well. And so I don't, I have zero judgment about any of that 
What I no. know, though, is for me, it doesn't work. And I suspect that there are other men out there that really, and I, well, I know <laughs> there are other men out there that embodiment and embodied men's work is the way for them to grow. Yeah. And you know, um, this actually makes me think of a conversation that you and I had at the retreat that we went on and you led, um, a portion of the retreat that focused on Kundalini yoga. Um, and you're, I, I don't, I don't think you're, uh, like a, a, a trainer. I don't think you do classes or anything, but you, you certainly had experienced it and you were experienced in it and you led us through these elements. And it was really fascinating. You, you said something that, that kind of blew my mind. Um, you said, I had to lead you through an hour of physical exertion just to get you to 10 minutes of meditation. What yeah. do you mean by that? That is so fascinating to talk about. And I think it ties into what we're, we're referencing here. You know, it is, it's true for me. It's true for a lot of men. Like the idea of, I'm just going to sit here and, you know, put my hands in Gyan Mudra and meditate like the picture on, you know, all the meditation apps and I'm going to experience bliss. I, it was not the case for me. Like I find that very painful to just go into a meditation where I'm literally sitting and trying to think of nothing while my brain, while my entire body is up in the upper half of my body. Like all my, all my feelings are basically inside of my head. And what I've found through Kundalini yoga, um, and men's, you know, embodied men's work is if I can put myself or have a teacher put me into a state, which is where I, a state where I'm fully in my body and Kundalini is an amazing way to do that. Then I'm ready to experience nothingness. Mm. But, and, and that's, which is, which is, you know, masculine bliss as, as David mm -hmm. Data talks about that feeling of nothingness or, and so it takes often at a good, maybe, maybe half an hour if it's, if it's intense, but some kind of physical embodied practice, again, Kundalini is amazing for this to get you to a place where you can then meditate uh, and experience nothingness. And um, I suspect that, and I've talked to a number of men this is a reality for a lot of them. They're like, I don't, I want to experience nothingness, but it takes me an hour to get there. Um, and maybe you can get there sooner, but it, I, it is, it is fundamental to the way that I experience nothingness is that being put in a state. Yeah. This, <clears throat> this sort of reminds me of the dialogue that, um, one of my creative collaborators drew and I had very, very early on as we were, starting the men's work that we do here in this area. And I, I was so eager just to get on with it. I just, I wanted to start. I just said, let's, let's just start. Let's, let's just, let's start a book club or something. And, you know, he's a, a Montessori school teacher and, you know, Montessori is all about doing and trying and being very active in your curiosity. And he said, I'm not interested in sitting around and dissecting intellectually things. Like I, I'm not like, I, I would rather us do nothing than do that same thing again. What we, what we need to do is we need to be active. We need to get out there and exhaust ourselves before we can really learn anything. 
And that concept for me is just so important. I think I connected that when you led us through that, that yogic practice, I realized that's what you're doing, right? You're, you're literally exhausting and exerting us to get us to the point of, of receptivity. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's like waking up your, waking up our bodies and that's the, you know, that's the thing. I mean, whatever you do to get there. I mean, Kundalini is so great because the, the poses that you do are just so, some of them are just so outside the norm, even for a, an experienced practitioner. You look up a new, um, a new Kriya and you're like, I'm going to put my hands where? And what am I? And it put, and what it does is it forces you to get into your body. Like there's no way to think your way through, you know, yeah, that you know the pose I took you through, where you're sitting in Kundalini chair pose and breathe, panting like a dog with your tongue hanging out of your mouth. Like it's going to put you in your body. It's going to put you in your body, and then all of a sudden, when you when you get that last five, ten, twenty minute, whatever meditation, whew, you're blissed out because you're in your body. Your head your head doesn't even know where it is anymore. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> first of all, that what what would what did you call it? The dog, the dog face, or dog's what, what, what dog's did you just breath. call it? Dog's breath. dog's breath. Can you just describe? I don't know. Are, are, can you describe what that is over the air? Would would that be yeah, okay? Because this was one of the funniest things ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I did. We did two things at once. I mean, the Kundalini chair pose is like the most awkward squat in the world. It's, a, you know, you can look that one up. But dog's breath is amazing for a lot of men, especially uh, for me. It was really useful. I had, a, I had a ton of energy blocked up in my throat, which made it really difficult for me to cry. And I, I know there are a lot of men out there that have a hard time. They're experiencing intense sadness, but they've blocked all this energy in their throat. So anyway, dog's breath can help you uh, release that. You don't, you don't need to cry when you do dog's breath, but it's a great way to clear the energy there. So in essence, you stick your tongue out and you breathe heavily through your mouth only. And so what it, what it looks like and sounds like is as if you were a dog on a hot day, you know, breathing and I'll, you know, I'll do the audio demo. So it's like, <sighs> and you can, you can really clear your throat. You're almost trying to make it as throaty as you can. And you could do that for a minute, maybe up to three minutes. You could you could do it for longer. There's different poses you can hold. But even just a basic dog's breath, sitting in a chair, standing up, whatever, can help to clear the energy. And then you want to do that in a group with, I don't know, <laughs> like in our case, we had seven. But, you know, I've done that with groups of 50 men. It's powerful. You start oh, yeah. to hear all these men out there doing dog's breath and it looks so crazy <laughs> and you're out of your head before you even know what's happened. Yeah, you seriously are. I actually, at one point you had us turn to the, the row behind us. I, I think well, I was having to view a man who was doing this and I just, his face is frozen in my mind all time doing this dog's breath. I, I do not think I will get over that in this lifetime. Uh, <laughs> and, and the reality is, I mean, the reality is it did take me out. Hmm, how do I say this? It took me out of my head and it located me so squarely in my body, but it was subtle because I didn't know that was what was happening. But as you say, when we hit that part, when you just said, all right, just be and just hear the wind and and just 
feel the air. And when you, when you took us into that meditative part, I was not elsewhere. My mind wasn't anywhere else. I was right there. And that experience is so rare, I think, for men. It certainly has been for me in my life. Yeah, it is. It's rare. It's been rare in my life. And I, you know, I chase it. <laughs> I mean, I, I mm -hmm. you know, fundamental to, to what I believe is that, you know, all men are, are chasing that kind of nothingness and freedom. And it's, you know, freedom from, from the prison of our own minds. You, you talked mm -hmm. about this last week on your cast around mindfulness, but this mm -hmm. is, this is different. I mean, this is a deliberate physical practice that puts you in a state where you can experience nothingness, which sounds it sounds like it shouldn't. Why is it so hard for a man to experience nothing? It's like, well, when does it really happen? Like, you know, there's immediately after orgasm, nothing. Right. Right. Yeah. That first buzz after the few sips of beer, nothing. But it's mm -hmm. bleeding. You can go there for mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20, an hour, you know, of, of meditation. What, you know, there's there are many men on the, on the planet that would want that. I mean, I, I think this is why so many men chase sex so much. I mean, really, really candidly, I, <clears throat> I think so much of this has to do with that is probably one of the few forms of, of um, transcendence that most men will experience in this lifetime. Um, and I think that's one of the places men instinctually get uh, presence is, is sex. But I think this is another form for me, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a different way to do it, and um, you can do it by yourself without you know having to turn to porn or something. You can just turn to Kundalini <laughs> Yoga or some other form of embodiment, embodied practice. <laughs> yeah. So so let me ask you. I mean, you you do all this leadership work and work with business leaders and thought leaders. How do you bring that sense of how do you bring that sense of physicality to to their life so well i'll 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 um confess that i do not have many people in a corporate setting at least sit around and do kundalini yoga they're not doing dog breath not not on a regular basis in their in their corporate offices <laughs> damn what i am getting people to do <laughs> is i get people to do stuff so mm. it when what and what that might look like is we might get together and you know if they've got a if they're if they're having a difficult time engaging in in conversations around performance feedback well we could talk about that for an hour or i could say okay well give me the scenario and i'll be that person and i'll do the best i can and you be you and that's often very confronting. It's like, oh, we're going to do it. I'm like, yeah, because then I can see what you do and I can tell you what works and what might not be working. Because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and this happens all the time. They're like, I'm a, I'm a really good person and, you know, I, I meditate. And I'm like, yep, awesome. And when you speak to people, sometimes they're afraid of you because of the way that mm -hmm. you look at them through your eyes. or they aren't open to you because you're using really closed off body language and your language mm -hmm. is inaccessible. Like what well, there's all kinds of stuff that's embodied and you can learn mm -hmm. about it. You can read about it. You can think about it. And until you actually do it, it's not the same. 
Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like that feedback loop that we were kind of talking about earlier is just so important. I <clears throat> I remember um, I was in my early 20s and I was sitting in a room with a, a lecturer who I really, really respected. And um, he was midway into the lecture when he suddenly stopped and said, you know, Rainier, Rainier, are you okay? You okay? And I... I kind of jolted myself. I said, well, yeah, like, what What do you mean? And he said, well, you're looking at me like you want to kill me. You're looking at me with serial killer eyes over there. So just wondering what was happening. And <clears throat> I didn't know what I was doing, but turns out when I'm very curious about something, when I'm very interested, historically, I had developed this very piercing, squinting gaze like you're talking about. And it had been very distracting to the lecturer. I mean, he he thought I, I wished him harm. Um, and and if he hadn't given me that form of feedback, I, I don't think I would have been aware of it, you know? It happens all the time. It happens to me in, in a setting where I'm giving feedback. And it happens to me when I'm facilitating. I see that. Mm. I see you in the back of the room. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy hates me right now. I don't know what I've done, <laughs> but they are not into this. And I, then I start self-referencing and think, oh, what have I done? Like, did I do something to piss them off in the morning? I don't know. And then the end of the day comes or lunchtime and that person inevitably walks up to me and says, I, I'm loving this session. It's just so interesting. And I like, I'm getting a ton of, I'm like, uh, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, <laughs> Tell your um, face. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's, that's tough. I mean, even in, in, in men's work, Often, this you know, in I'm part of John Wineland's um, embodied men's group, and when we get together, we do this exercise where we try to find the balance between uh, warrior and lover, mm. and it so much of it happens through the eyes and these subtleties. And you know, you, you're standing there, and and you've you've got this guy in front of you giving you feedback, more warrior, more lover, and you're like, I'm like, I don't even know what to do, and you move your eyes in this subtle way or your breath gets deeper or something happens and all of a sudden you hit the sweet spot. And, and I, that to me is how, how we learn in an embodied way. You like, you hit the right pose, you get the feedback. You're like, yep, that's the perfect balance. And then all of a sudden you, you, you know, like your body knows what that feels like, as opposed to intellectually, you know, my eyes are this far apart and my breath is deep. No, no, no. It's like you, it, it gets, installed in you almost like a computer program mm -hmm. yeah we build that into our bodies man travis i i i feel like our time is is drawing to a close and as it does i want to i want to plug a few things first of all mm. i just want to say um you're doing men's work in vancouver bc and I want to get your thoughts on that and uh, give you the opportunity just to talk to any men who, who you might want to. And then I also want you to address how men can can interact with you and your transformational leadership coaching um, and and what you're doing with that. So why don't you speak to both of those? Sure. The, you know, the embodied men's work in, in Vancouver is something that is really important to me. It's a huge part of my purpose and i'm starting with a group in vancouver so the um if you want to find out more about the group you can go check out my website which will be in the show notes but it is 
travisstreb.com. The last name is spelled S-T-R-E-B. Uh, you can check it out there. If you want to know more about the work I'm doing in the coaching space or other corporate work, you can check out the same website, travisstreb.com. All my information's there, as well as ways to get a hold of me, whether it's through email or on Instagram. Instagram's um, even easier. It's just at Travis underscore Streb. And I do respond to messages unless you're trying to sell me um, nude selfies, in which case I'm not interested in connecting <laughs> with you. Or if you have the next big marketing scheme for me on Instagram, I am not interested. Um, but everything else, I'm super keen on, especially if it comes to coaching or men's work or whatever else you want to talk about. Literally, both the ways I tried to connect with you at first got shut down. Yeah, that they makes did. a lot more sense now. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my sexy selfies and my marketing schemes. I did like the angle that you that you had, though. I really appreciated that. You know, I appreciate your boldness in stepping forward. <laughs> Travis, any last words to men um, that you would share with them? Insights and wisdom from your life? Yeah. Um, number one is you're not broken. You know, my when I walked into men's work and into you know personal development, my experience was I felt like after the first couple of sessions i'm like oh i'm totally broken and i need to fix myself and uh you're not <laughs> you're made the way you're made mm -hmm. the first part of becoming yeah. a conscious man is acknowledging just that the fact that hey i'm kind of fucked up and we all are and that's okay <laughs> but that's the first step mm -hmm. so you're not broken and secondly is like whatever the work is that you're doing see if you can find some way to bring some embodiment to it whether it's even just breathing more deeply or, you know, sitting with both of your feet on the floor instead of crossing them in front of you, like finding a way to be in your body and less in your head and not suggesting you have to do an hour of Kundalini yoga, although that might help, but find ways to embody and see if that might be an area that's an edge for you, but that gets you to where you're trying to get to um, and gets you more depth. Man, that's awesome. That's great insight. And uh, <clears throat> Travis, I'm super stoked that you came on Last Man Standing. And I think it's going to be the the first flowering of many interactions between us to come. Um, super stoked that we're in, in the Pacific Northwest, the, the Cascadia bioregion together. And uh, <laughs> I think there's going to be some collaboration coming. I see some stuff coming and you're going to hear about it um, through me and through last man standing and Rainier as well. So lots more to come. All right. Giddy up. We'll talk to you later. Stay wild, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>